morning. The scripture reading for this morning is from Genesis 3, verses 8 through 15. It can be found in the Pew Bible on page 2. Again, Genesis 3, verses 8 through 15, Pew Bible, page 2. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here me with, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, as you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. A 90-year-old couple sat on the front porch one night, and the husband was overcome with the beauty of the moment. So he turned to his wife, who was very hard of hearing, and he said to her, I'm proud of you. Huh? She said. I said, I'm proud of you. What did you say? She asked again. He said a little louder, I'm proud of you. Oh, she said, and I'm tired of you too. (laughs) More often than not, the case is that over time, the more familiar we are with something, the less fascination we have with it. We do get tired of things very quickly, don't we? You know the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. But really it is familiarity just breeds indifference. What once fascinated us over time, when the newness fades, we begin to lose the wonder of it. It can happen as we live day in and day out in the grind of life where life does seem so daily. It can happen when it comes to spiritual matters, our walk with the Lord. And so we go off and venture off in places we ought not to go because of the boredom of our life. It can happen when it comes to the Christmas story. We've heard it over and over and over again, and slowly the wonder of what occurred some 2,000 years ago diminishes. And so the old, old story can become just that, the old, old story, and we tire of it. Patricia in the movie Joe versus the Volcano says, My father says almost the whole world's asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says only a few people are awake and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. 
Are you awake? Are we awake? Whatever happened to wonder? I mean, here have we lost our capacity for wonder and imagination? With all the technology and stuff, we're not that impressed anymore. We often walk away and go, that was cheesy. When Jesus taught or answered his critics, Scripture often says the people were amazed at what he said. Are we still amazed? Still stunned by his coming? Is there very little sizzle left in the events surrounding the birth of Christ? Has the story been reduced to holiday cliché? Have we lost our sense of wonder at all that took place in the coming of God's Son to this world and what that really means for our lives? Do we have the sense of wonder? In 1997... Reeve Lindbergh, daughter of aviator Charles Lindbergh, was invited to give the annual Lindbergh Address at the Smithsonian Institution's Air and Space Museum to commemorate the 70th anniversary of her father's historic solo flight across the Atlantic. On the day of the speech... Museum officials invited her to come early before the facility opened so she could have a close-up look at the spirit of St. Louis, the, the little plane that was suspended from the museum ceiling that her father had piloted from New York to Paris in 1927. That morning in the museum, Reeve and her very young son, Ben, eagerly climbed into the bucket of a cherry picker, a long-armed crane that carried them upward until the plane was at eye level and within their reach. Seeing the machine that her father had so bravely flown across the sea was an unforgettable experience for Reeve. She had never touched that plane before. And that morning, 20 feet above the floor of the museum, she tenderly reached out to run her fingers along the door handle, which she knew her father must have grasped many times with his own hand. Tears welled up in her eyes at the thought of what she was doing in touching that plane. Oh, Ben, she whispered, her voice trembling. Isn't this amazing? Yeah, Ben replied, equally impressed. I've never been in a cherry picker before. (laughs) Missed the whole point. At times, we can become so immersed in the Christmas events that we have lost our wonder. The dictionary defines wonder as a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, and inexplicable. What was the wonder of the Christmas story? Mary wondered how it would be possible for a virgin to give birth to a baby. The shepherds in the fields wondered about the angels that appeared in the sky and and what their message really meant. Mary and Joseph wondered. They marveled at what Simeon said about their new baby. What was the wonder of the first Christmas? The The God who could order armies 
Move kings like pawns on a chessboard. Create with a single word. Hold the stars in place. Emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food and who depended on a couple of teenagers for food, shelter, protection, and love. Listen to how Philip Yancey puts it. He says, the God who came to earth came not in a raging whirlwind nor in a devouring fire. Unimaginably, the maker of all things shrank down, down, down. So small as to become an ovum, a single fertilized egg barely visible to the naked eye. An egg that would divide and redivide until a fetus took shape and lodging cell by cell inside a nervous teenager. Do we hear that and go, God became man. That's neat. Let's move on. As we rehearse the Christmas story again this year, try to enter in with fresh eyes and perspective. Try to put yourself in the shoes of those involved. Ask yourself, if I were present when these events took place, which parts would strike me as especially beautiful, unexpected, or inexplicable? Will you look at the way, will I look at the way we celebrate Christmas? Does your way of celebrating make room for wonder or distract from it? Are there even worn-out traditions that no longer bring out the marvel in you or perhaps in others around you? I ask, has all the sentimentalism of the season cheapened wonder that appears when you read the Gospels? And so I want to take some time leading up to Christmas on the wonder of Christmas And so our sermon series for this Christmas season is to call us to lose ourselves in the wonder of Christmas that we might recapture the awe of it all. And so we'll look at the greatest wonder of it all. We will look at the the wonder of miracles and, and yes, the, the wonder of genealogy. This morning, we'll look at the wonder of prophecy. Here's the first wonder of Christmas. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Christmas is God's great confirmation of all his promises. Christmas is God's great confirmation of all his promises. That is what I want us to grasp this morning. The coming of Christ was the confirmation of all the promises of God. Here's here's the flow of thought. If Old Testament Testament predictions of Christ come true, then God has told the truth. And if Christ has come, God is true. And if God is true, then all of the promises of God will come true. And if you are in Christ by faith, you will inherit all the promises of God that were meant for you. Christmas is God's great confirmation of all his promises. We come to an amazing prophecy found in the earliest chapters of the Bible. Andy read it for us in Genesis chapter 3. I trust that you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 3. Now, I chose this passage 
Because it's not one that we think of as relating to Advent season, the Christmas story. And I want us to look at Christ being revealed from the very beginning of Scripture and creation. And so, so look with me at Genesis chapter 3. And really, our focus is going to be on verses 14 and 15. That's really what we're zeroing, zeroing in on, is verses 14 and 15. Well, what is the prophecy as we come to Genesis 3, 14 and 15? Well, before we answer that, we need to unpack this a little bit. What I want us to see in this passage, three things. First of all, the pronouncement of the judgment. Pronouncement of judgment, first of all. Then we're going to look at the promise of perpetual struggle. The promise of perpetual struggle. And then thirdly, the prophecy of Christ's triumph. The prophecy of Christ's triumph. So first of all, the pronouncement of judgment. The pronouncement of judgment. Now, I remind you of the context of chapter 3. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with it, but but it's good to remind ourselves of it. As you know, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 describe the creation. It's worth noting that everything in chapter 1 and everything in chapter 2 in Genesis is what? Good. When it's all said and done, it is good. Now, it's in chapter 3 that everything goes bad. I mean, really bad, fatally bad, historically bad. There isn't a person in this room who isn't affected by what happened in Genesis chapter 3. There isn't a person in this world presently and who has ever walked on this earth and will walk on this earth that aren't affected by what happened in Genesis chapter 3. We live with the consequences of Genesis chapter 3. I'm reminded of the mom who was talking with her five-year-old daughter about her wrong behavior. And that because of her disobedience, she said to her, you're going to have to live with consequences. Oh, mommy, she said with a terrified look on her face, please don't make me live with the consequences. I want to live here with you. She kind of thought it was being dropped off somewhere. We live with the consequences of what happened in Genesis 3. There's nothing we can do about that. Only Christ could do something for us. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. But it's in Genesis chapter 3 that gives us an explanation as to why things in this world are the way they are. The evil, the brokenness, the riots in Ferguson, the beheadings, the school shootings, the earthquakes, the hatred, the disaster of all kinds. Oh, the bad and the ugly we read about in the news. It all comes from Genesis chapter 3. Whatever the spin we put on it, we've got to come back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, I'm not going to get into all that happens in this chapter, but suffice it to say, as you know, Adam and Eve lived in a state of innocence free from sin, no sense of shame or guilt. They lived with harmony with each other, harmony with God, and harmony with the world around them. They lived in a perfect world. They couldn't blame their environment for what happened. It's in chapter 3 that they become doubters of God and his goodness and fell to the temptation of Satan. Now, just as an aside, that is the very root of all sin. When we choose sin, we are doubting God's goodness. That's at the core. We are saying that what you say about it, God, can't be trusted. I know better. 
Now, if we were to read the entire third chapter, beginning at verse 1, we'd come to the key sentence or sentences in the middle of this chapter. I believe it's the focal point of the chapter. It's in the middle that we see the judgment of God. Because of one sin in Genesis, there was condemnation for all people. And because of the condemnation was ushered in the judgment of God. Because of our sin and all of us sin, the statistical probability of us sinning in this room is 100%. Because of that, we stand condemned before God because our natures are opposed to God, and so there's judgment. That's what we deserve. But before God pronounces his judgment on Adam and Eve for their choosing to sin, he pronounces his judgment on the snake. He says in verse 14, So the Lord God said to the servant, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you eat dust all the days of your life. This portion here is, is a selective curse on the snake. Now, why the snake? Because it was the snake, you recall, that got into a conversation with Eve. Now, have you ever wondered why in the world Eve was talking with a snake that talked in the first place? I mean, come on, I don't know. Why was she? Doesn't make sense. Didn't it raise any flags? Well, it didn't. Well, perhaps this snake here was some cuddly thing before this curse was pronounced on him. We really don't know. I can't help but, but kind of think of the, of the Geico lizard that stands on his two hind feet, but that's just kind of me. Whatever this creature was prior to this curse, we don't really know, for whatever might have been attractive about this snake changed from this point on. And verse 14 says the snake will crawl on his belly all the days of his life. They will not... They will not, Mr. Evolutionist, as they want you to believe, they will not grow legs, start walking, climb up trees, grow feathers, and become birds. Not true. This curse is permanent. It's permanent. Even the millennial kingdom, Doug referred to this, even the millennial kingdom, when the, while the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion and the ox will eat straw together, do you know what snakes will be doing? Even in the millennial kingdom, Isaiah 65, 25 says, dust will be the serpent's food. It's permanent. I mean, not literally will they eat food, dust as food, but as they slither and move about on the ground on their bellies, they will lick dust. Some scholars suggest that licking dust was an Old Testament expression for total defeat, perhaps. Now, snakes don't feel the curse, really. They just illustrate it. It's the one behind the snake that is of greater interest. And as we're going to see in a moment, snakes are a permanent symbol and constant reminder of the humiliation and defeat of Satan. It extends beyond the animal kingdom. It's a curse of Satan. The serpent of old is Satan, it says in the book of Revelation. I want you to notice something here in verse 15. Notice how it begins. It begins with the words, I will. I will. These are prevalent and significant words throughout the rest of Scripture. God says later to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Jesus says to his disciples, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus says to all of his followers, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Check out the many I wills in Scripture. In your own study of Scripture, when you come across those words, when God says, I will, circle them or or mark them down. Note that when God says, I will, because when God says, I will, he will. 
He will. And when God says, I will, our response to that is to do what? Believe God. We should take God at his word. We need to take God's I wills seriously. Because the phrase I will speaks of divine initiative, divine action, divine sovereignty. God is still in charge here and calling the shots. God says here in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What do we have going on here? Two things. We have the promise of a perpetual struggle, and we have the prophecy of Christ's triumph. The promise of perpetual struggle and the prophecy of Christ's triumph. So let's look at those. First of all, we have the promise of perpetual struggle. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is addressed to the serpent, not to mankind. It's part of the judgment passed on one who is the enemy of both God and man. But we find here a warning of great conflicts, a perpetual struggle of satanic powers which will oppose mankind and God's plan of salvation through the one who would come. Verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you, snake, and the woman, and between your offspring or seed and hers. Now that word enmity means deep animosity between morally responsible human beings. In other words, the battle lines are drawn from this point forward. There would be enmity between the adversary and the woman. Why will there be enmity? Did not Eve choose to go along with Satan through the temptation of the snake? I mean, isn't she kind of on his side right now? Why would there be a conflict between Eve and the serpents? Well, it suggests that Eve's affections turn toward God. In response to their rebellion, the gracious, sovereign Lord intervenes by changing Eve's affections so that she will love God, submit to his rule, and be at enmity with Satan. Adam and Eve chose to doubt God, but Satan has not won. He will not exercise complete control. We see that here. There will be those who will oppose Satan and submit to God. There will be those who will hate Satan and love God. How will this happen? It can only happen one way. It can only happen one way. The only way that a human heart will ever love and submit to God is to have some profound change within. We can't muster it up ourselves externally. There has to be some kind of radical transformation, some deep, deep change of the human heart to turn men and women back to God. Other prophets spoke of this as having a new heart. Jesus spoke of this as the new birth. The old Adam has to die, a new Adam has to be born. The old Eve has to die, a new Eve has to be born. New men, new women who hate Satan and love God. And God says here, this is a prophecy here, it's a prediction, that change will come. The only enmity that exists between Satan and mankind is when there's a change of mind and heart about God. You might recall in John chapter 8, It speaks of two groups of people, those who love God and follow him and those who who do not follow God and are opposed to God and choose instead to follow the ways of the world and the ways of Satan. And in fact, in John 8, they're called children of the devil, one or two. 
So it speaks of enmity here between the serpent and Eve. It moves from an individual to the plural. It speaks of the serpent's offspring or seed and Eve's offspring or seed. And speaking in a spiritual sense rather than a physical sense. It's referring to the same two groups of people, followers of God, followers of Satan, believers and unbelievers. The question comes down to whose seed are you? Which side? Can't be in the middle. It's one or the other. It's only two groups. No three. Two. So there would be this ongoing enmity between the godly seed and the ungodly seed. And it isn't even too far in the Old Testament history that this plays out between Cain and Abel, remember? See, the wonder of this prophecy on one hand is that God would need a remnant, a godly line of believers who would become the channel for the seed of the woman. The wonder of the promise is that God protects the seed in spite of continued opposition of the serpents. And unless I miss my guess, I think Satan understood this prophecy. Because what is Satan's strategy from this point forward? He tries to destroy the line of Messiah all along. We see it over and over again in the Old Testament as he sets to what? Annihilate the Jews. We see this in opposition to kingdom work that's being done today. Because if we're on the side of Christ, loved ones, then you should not be surprised that there will be a constant battle going on. Because the enemy of our souls will do all that he can to shake our faith. He will do all that he can to wreak havoc in our lives. He will do all that he can, and he's doing a good job at it because we're giving him a lot of material to work with to gain a foothold in our marriages, to gain a foothold in our homes, to gain a foothold in our churches and youth groups and small groups and Christian friendships and in leadership. We are constantly doing battle with the enemy of our souls, Let's not underestimate that. It is real. There's enmity. There's enmity. We are constantly doing battle with sin, a battle we all know too well in our lives. It's a perpetual battle, but there's hope. There's hope. Third point here is the prophecy of Christ's triumph. We end on this note of hope, the prophecy of Christ's triumph. In Genesis 3.15, we find the sign of the promised seed. This is called the first gospel message, pro-evangelium. The first flicker of the gospel. It tells us where God's going in the rest of the Bible. This is an amazing prophecy because we see here the promise of a Savior. Yes, in Genesis 3. Yes, in a pronouncement of judgment. Yes, in response to the fall of mankind. Yes, in the midst of consequences of their doubting and disobeying God, right when Satan might have thought of one, God says, not so fast. Just when Satan figured he won the hearts of the whole human race, at what just happened in the Garden of Eden, God states that Eve will turn on him, and out of her seed will come a redeemed humanity and a redeemer. The first prediction of the Messiah comes in a curse on Satan. Isn't that fascinating? We have embedded in the curse itself the gospel. 
We see the character of God on perfect display, who is by nature a Savior and Redeemer. We see the one who is gracious and merciful, marked by loving kindness. Where do we see that specifically in the final words of this pronouncement of judgment? Notice again the end of verse 15. The language here, by the way, moves from using the plural form of seed or offspring to speaking of a singular seed or offspring of Eve. God says, end of verse 15, he, meaning an offspring of Eve, will crush your, meaning the serpent's head, and you, serpent, will strike his heel. In other words, God is saying to Satan, there will be one individual who will come from the seed of a woman who will be your destroyer. I think God's doing a little trash talking here. God says, you bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Satan will have his day of bruising the Messiah, but it will not be a mortal wound. However, the blow to Satan will be fatal. How was Satan dealt a fatal blow? At the cross. By satisfying the justice and holiness of God, by paying the debt to God for our sin, by defeating death and rising from the dead. And here's the wonder of it. We we aren't very far into the scriptures, Genesis chapter 3, and we come to the cross. Her seed, the coming Messiah, would crush the serpent's head. Now, interestingly, I believe this is the only place in the Bible where it speaks of a seed of a woman. It's more common to talk of the seed of men. So this reference to a seed of the woman is predicting that there's one who would be born without a man's seed, without a human father, and that's the virgin-born Christ, the Son of God. This line of prophetic truth regarding the birth, the seed of the woman, becomes more and more amazing and wonderful as we're able to pinpoint accurately just who this deliverer is, when and where and how he would be born, and the many other amazing details predicted by the Old Testament Scriptures hundreds of years in advance. Jesus Christ is the promised seed. He's the one in whom the nations will be blessed. He's the answer to man's greatest need. Oh, there's so much encouragement to be found in these words this morning. I want to leave you with two, just in case we've missed it. Here's two words of encouragement. One, first of all, we see here in Genesis 3, God's marvelous grace. God's marvelous grace. Don't miss the wonder of that. Before God speaks... Note the order of this. Before God speaks to divine judgment on Adam for his sin, before God hands out the price that women are going to pay because of Eve's sin, good news and hope show up. Grace. Before God casts them out of the garden, grace and mercy show up. Before the punishment is placed on their backs, there's hope placed in their heart. That is so like God. Don't lose the wonder of this. What does Paul say in Romans 5, verse 20? Where sin abounds, what? Grace superabounds. Good thing. It's here in Genesis 3 that the gospel begins, and our response to that ought to be wow. Secondly, 
Another word of encouragement is Satan will be trampled. Christ will triumph. Satan will be trampled. Christ will triumph. It's on the cross that Christ crushed Satan's head. And now he's writhing around. He's doing all that he can in this world to cause harm. But he was beaten on the cross. I heard about a missionary in Africa who returned to his hut one late one afternoon. And, and as he entered the front door, he was confronted by a huge python on the floor. He ran back to his truck and he retrieved a 45 caliber pistol. And unfortunately, he had only one bullet in the chamber and no extra ammunition. So taking careful aim, the missionary sent that single shot into the head of the reptile. The snake was mortally wounded, but it did not die quickly. It began frantically thrashing and writhing on the floor, retreating to the front yard. The missionary could hear furniture breaking and lamps crashing inside the hut. And finally, when all was quiet and the man cautiously re-entered his house and he found the snake dead at that point, but the entire interior of the hut was shattered. In its dying moments, the python had unleashed all its mighty power and wrath on everything in sight. Is that not like the evil one? The serpent's days are numbered, and he knows it. In a final desperate effort to thwart the will of God and deceive his people, Satan has unleashed all his fury. How much damage can I cause? He's fostering hate and deceit and aggression wherever human interests collide. But because of our Redeemer, we don't need to fear the great father of lies. God is for us, who's against our enemy. Satan will be trampled. Christ will triumph. In Revelation 22, verses 2 and 5, picture not only Christ's reigning, but all who know him will reign with him forever and ever because Satan has been trampled and Christ will triumph. Follower of Jesus Christ. There is coming a day, not only when Christ will triumph, but loved ones, you will triumph in Christ. Why? Christmas is God's great confirmation of all his promises. A few weeks back in prayer meeting, we looked at a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 regarding the promises of God. Show it up on the screen here, 2 Corinthians 1.20. It says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. They are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Do you see what this is saying? This promise that goes as far back as Genesis chapter 3, it is a yes in Christ. That means all other promises are also yes in Christ. I get enthusiastic about that. It's the fourth quarter. There's no time left on the clock, and the Patriots are down by four points. Now, you can insert any name you want, your favorite football team, okay? Tom Brady goes back to throw, and there's some pressure on Brady. He's at the 20-yard line. He moves up to the line of scrimmage, and he sees some daylight. Might he run for it? Not a chance. He spots Gronkowski in the end zone, and he delivers a nice pass to Gronkowski. And Gronkowski, his receiver, and the defender both go up for the ball, up for the catch at the same time. And it looks like the defender has the ball in his hands, and he's intercepted the pass. The game would be over. Now, 
But wait! The Pats receiver Gronkowski comes down with the ball just over the goal line for a touchdown. They win the game. And I go, yes! I'm from New England. Insert your own team in there. Yes! Christmas is God's great confirmation of all his promises. They are yes in Christ. That's what saying amen is all about, really. We get to the end of our prayer, we can say yes, yes, yes. Helen Lemo lived in Seattle. She was in her 90s. She had born and raised in wealth in England and was a well-known songwriter. As a matter of fact, Helen wrote around 70 to 80 Christian hymns and songs that were popular in the 20s through the 50s. She composed the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Well, Helen had married into nobility, but after she was married, she was stricken with blindness as a young woman, and her husband divorced her because he didn't want to be married to a blind woman. Years later, she ended up destitute in Seattle, living in a tiny room in a home where the rent was paid by the county. In her room, she had a little plastic organ sitting on a table. It was a child's organ, but she would play it often, crying and singing. She had a vision once of going to heaven and finding a mighty, thundering pipe organ. And so she didn't see this little plastic organ as a bad thing, but rather she saw this little plastic organ as a foretaste of glory, a down payment on what God was going to do for her on the other side. Whenever people would ask her how she was doing, she would answer, I'm fine in the things that count. Then she would add, and I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait. That's The wonder of prophecy. When Jesus says, I am coming quickly, it's the Spirit that says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's the hardly can wait Spirit, the Spirit that perseveres. It persists through the tough times, believing that the gifts that come at His next coming will be better than we could ever imagine. Because Christmas is God's confirmation of all his promises. Let's not lose the wonder of that. But instead, beloved, we can say, yes, yes, they're ours. Not in this life, in the next. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for the promises we have in Jesus Christ. And may that just stir us up. To look at this season with even greater wonder may not be blasé, may not be same old, same old, but may we capture the awe of it all as we look forward to when you're going to come again with all your gifts in hand, all that we can claim to be ours because we are in Christ. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, yes, amen. Hymn number 124, beautiful reminder. As prophets looked forward to the Christ to come, we too look 
long for the expected Jesus to come. Let's stand as we close with 124.